0: You're listening to Plenary Session. On this week's Plenary Session, you're in for a real treat. I have Dr. Martin Schreiber. Martin Schreiber is a trauma surgeon who has operated both in the United States as well as on the battlefield of Iraq and Afghanistan. Dr. Schreiber has incredible experience in trauma surgery in a variety of settings, and he will embody the old quote by Hippocrates, that he who would become a surgeon should join the army and follow it, because it is in the army and the battlefield that the crucible of surgical advances take place. So you won't wanna miss this interview. And first, I'm gonna talk about a paper by Ashley Cole and Stacy Dusitzina called Generic Price Competition for Specialty Drugs, Too Little, Too Late? This paper adds to the body of work by Dr. Dusitzina that puts her among the very top of the finest health policy researchers in all of cancer drugs and why her recent hire by Vanderbilt University was a terrific hire and anyone would be lucky to have her working there. So stay tuned for these two things. But first, a plug. If you like this episode and you like this podcast, go to the iTunes store and give us five stars. It really means a lot. Write a review if you have the time. If you want to follow us on Twitter, we're at plenary underscore session. And if you really want to support this podcast, now there's a new option. You can go to patreon.com and you can back us, patreon.com forward slash plenary session. You can back us at any level that uh, you choose, and supporters will get access to links and articles that we discuss on this podcast, as well as slides for presentations. So go to Patreon. We could use your support. Okay. This is a paper in health affairs by Ashley Cole and Stacy Dusadzina entitled Generic Price Competition for Specialty Drugs, Too Little, Too Late. It's about the story of imatinib, which is a very important story in cancer medicine. And I'm going to discuss it alongside an article that if you're an oncology fellow, you must read. This is by Carlo gambarcorti passerini entitled Imatinib, A New TKI for First-Line Treatment of CML in 2015. It was published in JAMA Oncology, and it is the definitive viewpoint about what BCR-able inhibitor to use first in CML. So, where to get started? The article by Dr. Cole and intertwines several important and related issues in cancer medicine. One, we have a number of drugs in cancer medicine that have been followed by a slew of Me Too drugs. I'm talking about imatinib, disatinib, basutinib, panatinib, nilotinib in CML. I'm talking about sunitinib, pazopanib, exitinib, serafinib in renal cell cancer, and I'm talking about ramucerumab, aflibercept, and avastin, bevacizumab, and colorectal cancer, for instance. So a number of me-too drugs that just you know, build up market share in a particular oncologic indication. Okay, so that's one of the facts of oncology. We also, at long last, are coming to the age where we're going to get some generic drugs in this space imatinib went generic in 2016 and we will see a slew of generic drugs come out in the next decade to follow but the key question in oncology is will generic drugs lower prices because that's the great promise of generic drugs a generic drug is supposed to come out and then rapidly result in price reduction but why might that not be the case it might not be the case if doctors move their patients who were taking the parent drug to second-generation Me Too drugs that have longer patents that will allow them to use costly branded cancer drugs for years to come. So for instance, if the patent on Bevacizumab is expiring and we have biosimilar Bevacizumab coming out, if everyone switches to a Flibercept, that's not really going to save us a lot of money. And it's also not going to be that wise because a Flibercept is almost surely no better than Bevacizumab, which is almost surely a very marginal drug now let's talk about imatinib imatinib is a great drug it's perhaps the greatest drug ever invented in oncology in the last 30 years and full disclosure it was invented here at ohsu by my boss's boss dr brian Drucker. but that said i think many people will concede that this is a transformational drug and we recently saw that in a paper that came out a couple years ago in the jco which shows life expectancy in the pre imatinib era and life expectancy in the post imatinib era and you essentially had a condition with a median survival about three to five years, chronic phase CML, that now has a median life expectancy that is abutting normal life expectancy. In other words, you transformed a universally fatal condition to something where you have a nearly normal life expectancy. That's the kind of drug we want in oncology. That's the kind of transformational, biologically driven treatments we want more of. So, matnib is a great drug, and when matnib came out and cost almost four thousand dollars a month, there were a lot of people out there who were concerned that we were reaching an unprecedented level of pricing, and they were concerned that you know thirty, forty thousand dollars a year—that's going to be too much to sustain. Well. Unfortunately, in retrospect, we know they were getting quite a deal because that same Imatinib that came out at nearly four thousand dollars in two thousand and one steadily underwent price increase till it peaked in about twenty fifteen at about ten thousand dollars per month of treatment. The makers of Imatinib Novartis, who once saw this drug and this indication as something in which they would be unlikely to really turn a profit, were now making upwards of three to four billion dollars a year annually off this medication alone. So they Largely, by cranking up the price, we're able to achieve tremendous profits from imatinib. Then, what has happened? In the last couple years since we've had generic entry, we have a few generic manufacturers, and the price has fallen to now maybe about $8,000 per year of treatment. This was shown elegantly in the first exhibit by Dr. Cole and Inducidzina. Why is this important? Even though the price of the generic is lower than the price of the branded compound in 2015, it's still about double what the drug cost when it came out on the market in 2001. So the generic is not really much of a savings over the initial price of this drug. Okay. But we're going to get savings in the future, because over time, people are going to switch their CML patients to generic imatinib as a frontline treatment for CML, and we're going to get some savings, right? And there'll be more generic manufacturers. And as Kesselheim and colleagues have shown in a letter in New England Journal of Medicine, the more manufacturers of generic you get, the price will fall at roughly 10% per generic entrant on the market. Well, the real sobering conclusion of the Cole paper is that this might not be the case. The authors map the price of imatinib alongside the market share, and they show that while imatinib captured all of the market share in CPCML in 2001, 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6, by 2007, and at the end of 2006, but 2007, we saw some inroads from disatinib and nilotinib, and over time, nilotinib and dasatinib are capturing broader and broader and broader portions of the market share, and now they capture upwards of 50% of the market share in frontline CML. So even though generic imatinib is able to capture at least a good 20% of market share, the bulk of market share is now captured by second-generation TKIs, nilotinib and Desatnib, and there's still a little prescribing a brand name imatinib. What does all this mean? This means even though we have generic entrance on the market, if doctors transition to me-too drugs in that same treatment indication, it will erode all of the savings in drug prices. In fact, we may end up paying more next year in BCR-ABLE inhibitor therapies for CML than we paid at the outset in 2001. Now some of you might say, well, this is okay. These second generation drugs are better drugs, and I would say, oh. Really, are they? Because one must look very critically at that data. Do we use nilotinib and disatinib because they're better drugs, i.e. improve overall survival over imatinib? And the answer is, why? of course not. Survival with imatinib is terrific. And it would be very difficult to show an improvement in OS. And in fact, these drugs have never done that. And if they wanted to, nothing stops a drug maker from going into high SOCAL risk score CML and actually trying to establish that it improves some harder endpoint or even accelerated phase CML and to show that, you know, you can improve a very hard endpoint in that setting. Nothing has stopped them. Uh, But in fact, that's not been the case. These are drugs, nilotinib and dasatinib, that gained frontline CPCML approvals based on randomized trials against imatinib. And now, finally, basutinib has has gotten in here as well, although the paper by Ducidzina and colleagues show, you know, very little market share there so far. They have gotten there based on randomized trials that show a primary endpoint of increased major molecular response, MMR. Now, MMR is not CR. It's not cytogenetic response. Complete cytogenetic response was an important endpoint. And it was an endpoint that I believe was upwards of ninety percent in the phase one trial by Drucker and colleagues in the New England Journal of Medicine. So you know that was a drug that really hit the ball out of the park with the original primary endpoint, the original endpoint of CML. But because imatinib is so good, we have devised a whole bunch of other ultra-sensitive, you know, endpoints that can be hit. And dasatinib and nilotinib do induce deeper or perhaps faster responses in terms of MMR. So Gambarcorti Passerini writes, The superiority, the supposed superiority of second-generation TKIs is based on two registration studies, which showed a faster reduction of BCR-ABLE gene transcripts, a 10 to 15% increase in the rate of complete cytogenetic response by 12 months, and a protection from progression to AP-CML or blast crisis CML of maybe one percentage point, one to two percentage points. Then gambar Passerini point out that that last thing that, it, that these second generation TKIs mean it's less likely for you to have AP-CML. Um, that is on the cusp of significance, and some of these trials show significance, others don't, and extended follow-up of some of these trials also flip-flop on significance. And this, of course, is not the primary endpoint of the study, and this is something that they take with a grain of salt. Okay, so let's take that with a grain of salt. Now, what about faster reduction in the BCR-ABLE gene transcript? That's true. You can achieve that with desatinib and nilotinib, but does that mean people live longer or live better? And what's the problem with being a little bit patient on your BCRABLE transcript for patients who are started on imatinib? There's no problem at all. And all of the guidelines we use in the space of CML that says you need basically a log-fold reduction every three months, these are arbitrary guidelines that were selected, I think, in the absence of robust evidence showing that those guideline targets are meaningful, and there's a sizable percentage of patients who don't meet those guidelines that if you just exercise some patience, you would eventually be able to drive lower, and they would do just fine. Okay, so corti Passerini question the efficacy that supports any other drug other than imatinib as a frontline CML drug. This is how they summarize the efficacy. Quote, it has to be remembered that it has always been difficult to discern an independent prognostic value for molecular responses outside of cytogenetic ones. If obtaining quote, faster and deeper responses using second generation TKAs does not convert into a better prognosis, then this phenomenon should not dictate a change in therapy by itself. Spot on. Very well said. Now let's talk about safety. In contrast with satinib and nilotinib, imatinib arguably offers a superior safety profile. gamber Corti right. Dasatinib's safety profile includes pleural and pericardial effusions in a sizable proportion of patients, especially after long-term use. Nilotinib is even more dangerous. The drug causes a sort of metabolic syndrome characterized by increased glucose, cholesterol, and TGs, which can lead to clinical DM in 18% of patients and accelerated atherosclerosis. In contrast, imatinib shows a remarkably safe toxicity profile even in long-term studies. I think if these drugs were marketed evenly, it would likely be the case that physicians preferred imatinib. In fact, if the drugs had been developed in the reverse order, physicians may be willing to tolerate the tolerability of imatinib over the purported superiority of achieving a molecular endpoint that may have little clinical import. Um, So it is really imatinib that I think should remain the frontline treatment of CML for the majority of patients, and we can have a little debate about very high socal risk scores, um, the market share being given to nilotinib and dasatinib are likely unjustified. So back to the paper by Cole and Dusadzina. The reason these two issues intertwine so interestingly is that generic drugs were supposed to lower the price of cancer treatments, but the industry is clever and they see the the horizon, the looming specter of generics, and they will do everything in their power to switch you over to a more costly second generation drug. Look no further than obinutuzumab, okay? Obinutuzumab deepens responses over rituximab and has a little bit better PFS in a couple of conditions, follicular lymphoma and CLL. It failed to be better than rituximab in the one condition where probably the dose of rituxin beyond 375 milligrams per meter squared doesn't matter a heck of a lot, DLBCL, and it does work better in tumor types that are indolent, incurable lymphomas, where pushing the dose may actually improve the rituxin outcome, as was shown in some data by Susan O'Brien many years ago for CLL. Okay, that's where obinutuzumab works better. But what's the difference between obinutuzumab and rituximab? The industry can market all they want, glycosylation, increased ADCC, but what is the real difference one of the differences is the dose they're giving they're giving 1000 milligrams of the new antibody we're giving 375 milligrams per meter squared of the old antibody that dose of the old antibody you guys can go out there and ask Ron Levy where that dose came from that dose is a historical accident that has to go back to the very first phase two studies of rituximab and how much drug they actually had on hand and that's how they ended up with a very arbitrary dose that dose has not really been optimized Okay, So the industry is bringing out a new antibody just in time for biosimilar rituximab, and they're trying to transition us to obinutuzumab. And they're going to do the same thing in every single class of cancer drugs where there are drugs that do work. This will exacerbate cost. And that is what Cole and Ducidzina are so much ahead of everyone else in starting to see. They point out in their paper, there is no OS benefit to second-generation TKIs over imatinib and they point out that they're gaining tremendous market share, and thus generic drugs in cancer medicine may not lower spending because we will be moving away from those drugs to newer drugs that may not actually be better on hard clinical outcomes. And that is a great concern in health policy that has been captured in this paper in health affairs by colinducidzina that is really Tremendous, And on that positive note, stay tuned for my interview with Dr. Martin Schreiber, a trauma surgeon who has practiced both in the United States and in Iraq and Afghanistan, and who will captivate you with the stories he tells. So stay tuned. I'm back here in Plenary Session HQ with Dr. Martin Schreiber. Dr. Schreiber is professor of medicine at the Oregon Health and Science University. He's a practicing trauma surgeon, and he has had an illustrious and fascinating career that spanned uh, many different settings, performing uh, battlefield medicine uh, during the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, um, as well as performing civilian medicine, trauma surgery, um, and is gonna share with us a lot of information about this. Um, But first, let me thank him for coming here. Thank you, Dr. Schreiber.
1: Thank you. Pleasure being here, but I do have to correct you. I'm a professor of surgery.
0: Professor of surgery, (laughs) I see. (laughs) A doctor of medicine, (laughs) professor of surgery. Um, Let me tell listeners a little bit about you first. Dr. Schreiber, you did your medical school at Case Western University in Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, You went on to do your general surgical training at the University of Washington, uh, where you stayed on to do a fellowship in trauma surgery. Uh, From there, you spent a couple of years in El Paso, Texas, working... Uh, in active duty in the military. Uh, then a few years in Texas at the Ben Taub Center. And l- more recently for what, since the early 2000s here at OHSU?
1: Correct, uh, exactly. So Case Western Reserve University for medical school. Uh, I did do a one year internship at Madigan Army Medical Center on active duty, then residency and fellowship at the University of Washington. Four years at William Beaumont Army Medical Center as the chief of trauma and critical care uh-huh. there. Uh, two years at Bentab as the Chief of Trauma, and then the last 17 years here at OHSU. Wow,
0: okay, so a lot of diverse settings. And you were telling me before we got started here that you've you spent time in, in the theaters of war.
1: Correct. Uh, I, I actually uh, entered uh, the Army Reserve in 1984, and I've been in the Army Reserve for the past 34 years. I've been deployed three times. In 2005, I went to Iraq. In wow. uh, 2010, I was the Joint Theater Trauma System Director. For oh, wow. all of uh, uh, Iraq and Afghanistan, and in 2014, I wasn't uh, deployed to Afghanistan to a forward surgical team. Wow, um, there's. I, I want to ask you a lot about your
0: backstory first, but but for actually, first I want to just jump in and ask you. My understanding is that um, we learned a lot about battlefield medicine during the wars in Iraq. Specifically, we got very good. At improving survival uh, by being by doing some field level stabilization, then rapidly transporting people to Frankfurt and then here to the United States for more complete surgery, we basically staged surgery that was once done all in the all on site.
1: Yeah, so uh, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan have probably done more to revolutionize the way we take care of trauma patients than anything in the past. And it's been recognized for a very long time that that people learn how to take care of patients during wartime mm-hmm. because there's so many numbers of casualties, overwhelming numbers of casualties. We make a, a lot of progress in medicine. Uh, and basically, in the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, we learned a lot about really Two major things. Number one, emphasizing and focusing on, on hemorrhage control mm-hmm. as the primary event that saves lives. I see. And then optimizing resuscitation. I see.
0: And uh, and in that order, hemorrhage control first, and then resuscitation too. Absolutely. So okay. stop
1: bleed, Stopping bleeding. Uh-huh. So and out of this has come, very interestingly, uh, a nationwide effort called Stop the Bleed. Stop the Bleed. And Stop the Bleed. And, and Stop the Bleed as quickly as possible. Exactly. Which means in uh-huh. the field.
0: In the field. Which means in the field. Right. And how is it accomplished in the field?
1: So it's a it's a, it's a it's a good question. So in, in the streets of the United States or any other nation, as well as in wartime Iraq and Afghanistan, very simple methods. Number one, apply pressure. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that can be done with gauze bandages or a clean shirt mm-hmm. or whatever you have. Uh, Number two, utilizing a tourniquet. Mm -hmm. So uh, Stop the Bleed teaches these very, very basic ideas about stopping bleeding in the field. And this means that as soon as the injury occurs, the first responder is not EMS. No, it's whoever's in the field, right? Yeah, exactly. The first responder who's ever there. So if it's in a classroom, it's the teachers, the other students. If it's on the streets, it's the policeman. Uh, other civilians, mm-hmm. and these people are being trained across the world mm-hmm. to save lives by stopping bleeding. The, the major cause of preventable death is bleeding that occurs in the field. I see. So by training civilians to stop bleeding, applying pressure, using packing wounds deeply, and utilizing tourniquets, we're saving a ton of lives, and it's a direct result of what of, we learned in the war. Exactly.
0: And now tell me about this packing wounds. So, in the battlefield, soldiers were trained to actually pack wounds in the field? So, uh, the
1: battlefield's different. Okay. So, the battlefield's interesting because uh, you have to uh, take into consideration the uh, tactical situation. Okay. So, saving lives, the first tenet of saving lives in the battlefield is to return fire oh, okay, and right. to enable the casualty to return fire until you can get them to safety. I see. So Mm. the priority is given to expedient methods at hemorrhage control. It turns out that packing a wound actually takes time. It's packing a wound and holding pressure. And while you're packing a wound and holding pressure, you can't fire at the enemy. So the best thing you do is tourniquet. Is a tourniquet. So you can apply a tourniquet in 10 seconds, 15 seconds, and then you and the casualty can return fire. And did soldiers go out into the field with tourniquets? Absolutely. They did. So uh, And in two formats. And I think this is really important. So it turns out that the tourniquet is actually part. Of a warfighter's uniform. Mm-hmm. It goes in a shoulder pocket. It has a little red triangular tip to it. yeah And if you don't have that tourniquet on your uniform, you could be
0: court martialed. Oh, my. So it, it's visible to uh, somebody walking by saying, this person has got a tourniquet with Absolutely. them. Absolutely. Oh, wow. And so that's the
1: tourniquet that they carry that uh, is on their uniform. And then they carry a second tourniquet in their first aid kit.
0: And what are these made out of? They're silk cloth tourniquets? Uh, they're or?
1: cloth tourniquets. Uh, and the key to them is that they have a turnstile device that can be fixed in place so that you can apply adequate pressure to obliterate the pulse. I see.
0: Oh, that's fascinating. And... Um Okay, so this is the this. These are the rules. It's the first thing you do um, quickly uh, achieve uh, some blood control so that you are able to return fire. So you protect the person, bring them back to a safe space. Um, from there, you take them to a local uh, operating theater uh, on site in Iraq um, and perform just some preliminary
1: surgery. Is that right? That's correct. So, uh, so. The classical template of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan so, utilized something called a forward surgical team, mm-hmm. which is uh, could be a fixed facility, but could as easily be just a series of tents. And in there, in those forward facilities, you perform damage control surgery, stop the bleeding, take care of an initial contamination from bowel injuries, uh, debride wounds, and then transfer the patient to a higher level of care. So, forward surgical teams are known as level two or role two facilities. From the, from the forward surgical team, you then go to a combat support hospital in theater, mm-hmm. which is, which is Roll 3. I see. And then very quickly on to Germany in Landstuhl, which is where the role 4 facility is, which is essentially the equivalent of a major hospital. I see. And then from Germany back to the United States. And this can occur from the dirt in Iraq or Afghanistan to Germany and back to the United States in as short as three to four days.
0: Wow. I see. And also going through a series of 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 operations
1: and operate and at every step when appropriate, at every level, at least one operation. I see. And and this um,
0: mindset is what revolutionized uh, trauma trauma care uh, in in the war.
1: Right. And and the elements of it were focusing on stopping the bleeding, Mm -hmm. which is now if you if you go to an ATLS class, advanced trauma life support, which is. The, uh, the standard for the care initial care trauma patients around the world, you now see slides that say in big red capital letters, "Stop the bleeding." I see. It's been, okay. It's changed, and then the, the core, stop the bleed, and then everything. So the entire focus has changed from resuscitation to stopping the bleeding.
0: And now let's talk a second about resuscitation. By resuscitation, yes. you mean the administration of exogenous blood products or fluid um, to the person who has lost some blood. That's right. And in in the theater. What did, did you use whole blood?
1: Yes, mm. lots of whole blood. So, and whole blood comes in a couple of different uh, uh, characters. One is uh, what's known as fresh whole blood. Mm-hmm. So this means that you have a bleeding casualty who's getting a massive transfusion. You uh, put out a call for all of uh, war warfighters to come and then donate blood. This is the walking blood bank. And these are people who will then donate blood. They've been pre-screened for uh, viral infections. We know their blood types. And within one hour of calling for whole blood, you've got a nice warm unit of whole blood uh, or as many units as you need to give. And I've given in theater as many as 23 units of whole blood from individual warfighters. Wow.
0: So these are soldiers who've already been screened, already ready to go, uh, just one of their many duties.
1: That's right. Wow. So, if you're on a forward operating base, which is what uh, our larger war fighting ca- capabilities are in Iraq and Afghanistan, there are loudspeakers. So if you're in the operating room with a patient who's getting a massive transfusion, a call goes out, all eligible donors report to the medical treatment facility, wow. and a horde of warfighters shows up uh, willing and able to give blood. Wow. That's quite impressive. It's, a, it's unbelievable. It's amazing. Now. That is the fresh whole blood. Mm-hmm. Now there's a whole other type of whole blood, which is liquid cold stored whole blood. Okay. Now this, this blood goes through standard testing, FDA approved, and is, a, is, a, is what we're now using in civilian medicine. I see. For instance, here at OHSU. So this blood has been formally tested and it's cold stored uh, and uh, can be stored for up to 35 days.
0: And and the advantage of whole blood is, and uh, here I'm a little, uh, admittedly a little rusty, but I know we have some randomized trials of ratio one to one to one, one to one to two, uh, FFP, uh, platelets, and blood products. Uh, and and what's the optimal ratio to administer? What is the thinking in trauma surgery on what is the optimal ratio to
1: administer in somebody who's lost a lot of blood? So just to, so I'm a surgeon, yeah, I think simply, okay, <laughs> patients are bleeding whole blood, okay, right? That's so what's coming
0: out. That's what's going in.
1: That's what needs to go in. Okay. So. There are many components of blood that need to be replaced. The red cells, the proteins in plasma, the coagulation factors, the platelets, the cryoprecipitate, and and thousands of other proteins that do things that we don't even know what they do. They have biological activities, and all of these are playing important roles in the outcomes of patients. So, for instance, I'll give you a very brief example. We know that when you have trauma, the glycocalyx and endothelium of the blood vessels breaks down, Mm -hmm. which is what causes edema. If you give products that contain plasma, Mm -hmm. you'll rebuild the glycocalyx and seal the endothelium, which prevents third spacing, keeping fluid intravascular. Mm -hmm. That's just one example of uh, blood. So blood is not just a resuscitation fluid, Mm -hmm. it's actually a medication or or a thousand medications. Mm and each of these has important parameters now if you in the same models if you give lactated ringers Mm -hmm. to the same patient you actually exacerbate the endotheliopathy of trauma you increase leak and decrease the glycocalyx so what you're giving these patients is critical so whole blood is what they're bleeding all of the components of what whole blood is doing is what they need in return. Mm-hmm. The ratio of one-to-one-to-one, to one to one, the concept of that one-to-one-to-one to one to one was actually to recreate whole mm-hmm. blood. Mm-hmm. Whole blood, right, to exactly. To reproduce whole blood. Right. So we finally started saying, well, let's not just reproduce whole blood, mm-hmm. let's just give whole blood. I see. And that's how this evolved. And, you know, the interesting thing about this, if you look at the history of blood transfusion, all of the blood transfusions up until probably somewhere in the 70s were whole blood transfusions, all of them. So in the 1600s, people were exsanguinating dogs and resuscitating them, and they used whole blood. Whole blood, all the way for the next three over 300 years, until we started using component therapy.
0: Uh huh. Which was and a, why
1: was com- component therapy? Because the shelf life can be optimized. Exactly. So hmm. that's a huge part of it. Uh, shelf life can be optimized. You can store plasma, crowd precipitate for up to a year. Uh, red cells for 42 days, whole blood can be stored depending on what you store it in for either 21 days or 35 days. So you're extending the half-life of the product, but also many patients don't need whole blood. Right. That's true. In different situations that it's
0: not a trauma situation, right? Exactly. So
1: you have oncologic patients, maybe they just need a a unit or two of platelets. Maybe they need a unit or two of plasma, maybe a unit or two of red cells. But what happened was we try to make that component blood bank fit everything. And the needs of a massively exsanguinating patient are very different than the needs of an oncologic patient that may need just one type of blood product. And we, what we really need is two separate blood banks.
0: I say, well, If here at OHSU you get called you know, in the next 15 minutes for a trauma patient who's ex- massively exsanguinating, what are you ordering? What, what you, What's your go-to? So
1: what will happen is, right. uh, We will, uh, a box of blood will appear at the same time as the patient arrives. That's part of the trauma protocol. That's part of the trauma protocol. Mm -hmm. And that will have uh, four units of whole blood in it. Oh, it will. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. And then if that blood, if we open that box and start to transfuse that blood, we activate the massive transfusion protocol. And now five units, boxes with five units of whole blood come until we stop the protocol.
0: Oh, wow. And this is all O negative whole blood. No. No it's
1: okay. O positive. Okay. So, uh, we have a mixture of O positive and O negative. Okay. So in males it doesn't matter if you use O positive That's or O negative. So fair it's only point. Right. O negative only applies to Child females of childbearing age. Right. Okay. So most of the blood we can get we give is O positive. Uh, and you know this is a very interesting concept because the the universal donor for red cells mm-hmm. is O, but the universal donor for plasma is AB.
0: Is AB right? Of course, right. Because yeah, So yeah, right.
1: Uh, this blood has to be what we call low titer. Uh,
0: so the titers uh-huh. to
1: anti-A and anti-B in civilian medicine are less than two hundred, uh-huh. and some places use less than fifty. Military uses less than two fifty, but we call it we refer to it as low titer O whole blood, meaning that the antibodies are low in titers and that we can use this blood. Uh, as a universal donor,
0: in military medicine, for instance, when you put out the, over the foghorn, tell um, you know, call for uh, blood. Um, the people in whom you've already screened, you've already proven that they are low-titer producing patients.
1: No, no, no. But you're but ruined, okay. The population. Uh-huh. So these are young, yeah, healthy, yeah, war fighters, right? And that population is low-titer. I see. Uh,
0: they haven't yet experienced all the antigenicity of uh, of life. Exactly. Dr. Schreiber, let me shift gears. I mean, I could talk to you about this all day, but let me shift gears <laughs> a little bit and, and ask you. Um, I wanted to. I always try to ask this of people because I think it's it, it's interesting to me, at least, and it's interesting to some people in the audience, perhaps. Um, when you were a student at Case Western, when did you decide that surgery was the right field for you, and when did you decide it was going to be trauma surgery?
1: Yeah, so great question, and I have a. I can I can tell you the exact minute okay. that it happened, and. Uh, as I was developing in medical school, first couple of years, I really thought I was going to go into internal medicine. I was fascinated by internal medicine. I thought there were a lot of interesting concepts. But the very second I walked into an operating room, I felt like I was home. Wow! This is, this is me, the environment, the collegiality, the teamwork, and what was happening in that operating room. It's like I'd been there my whole life. Hmm. And the very second, the first time I walked into an operating room, I knew that's what I wanted to be. Wow. And that was it. From that day forward, I was going to be a surgeon. I see. Not before? Not wh- before. Wow. I hadn't even considered it. Really? Not until, I, until my surgery clerkship and the day I walked into an operating room. And, and, um,
0: and you trained in the era before any work hours or anything like that? Oh,
1: yeah. Oh, yeah.
0: And you trained at the University of Washington. That's which right. My understanding is the culture there was um, a strict culture. Would you say that, or was it already a little more progressive then?
1: You know, it wasn't the strictest, okay. but uh, I'll just tell you that the longest I stayed in the hospital without going home was three days. Wow. 72 hours uh, straight in the hospital, working very busy on the trauma service uh, with essentially no sleep. And I've had, I had uh, fellow chief residents that spent a week in the hospital. Wow. I mean, I think there there are many aspects of work that
0: can make it challenging. And one aspect is clearly the amount of hours to work and the amount of duties to have. Another aspect can be um, uh, sort of the the temperament of the people who are telling you what to do or your supervisors. What was it like when you trained at the University of Washington? Were people friendly, agreeable? Were they tough on you? What was it like to be a resident there?
1: Well, uh, I think the biggest difference between when I trained and now was, um, these hospitals were resident run. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you know, one of the major hospitals I worked at was Harborview. Another one was the VA. And the residents were running the, were running the show. They were managing the patients. They were doing the operations. Attendings were almost like visiting professors. Really? Um, um, yeah. They Just showing were their face. vastly less involved than we are. For instance, I'll give you an example. On a busy night at Harborview, trauma night, I might see 25 critical patients in a night. Mm-hmm. Very badly injured and never seen attending. Oh, wow. Okay. Here at OHSU, uh, every one of those would be a trauma alert and there'd be attending standing at the bedside when the patient arrived on every single patient. I see. Whole operations at the VA without the attending in the room. Uh, and now, uh, you know, attendings are present. For time uh, out. And yeah. yeah. The VA now has actually the strictest policies. Uh-huh. The attending has to be present before the patient goes in the operating room. I see. Right. You can't even go. I say Exactly. Okay. patient can't go into the room. Mm-hmm. So I think that was, a you know, that's, really the biggest difference in training in terms of the personalities uh, I, you know I'm still close friends with many of the people that trained me particularly the uh, uh, the surgeon at Harborview uh, some of them are you know really really close friends of mine uh, you know Harborview is primarily a trauma hospital I'm a mm-hmm. trauma surgeon they're part of my, my culture and my societies and I feel very close to those people not only the attendings but also the residents that I train with these were not uh, hardcore people uh, militaristic people these were good human beings that you know really cared about their patients
0: nicely and cared about their trainees
1: and they and they cared about their trainees this was not this was not a hardcore the programs that you know i heard that were more like that were places in the more like in the east coast mm-hmm. uh, you know I, I i mentioned that i spent uh, a couple years at baylor at mm-hmm. bentob mm-hmm. and uh you know, prior to my arrival there, De- Michael DeBakey, mm-hmm. who I'm sure you've heard of, yeah, was running the show. Yeah. And they had a red line in their ICU, uh-huh. and you basically couldn't cross that red line for two months. You stayed in that ICU for two months, physically in the ICU. Your wife would come if you had one, do your laundry. These are for the CT surgery trainees. Uh, and residents. And residents. And
0: oh, wow. Okay. So you couldn't
1: leave that you ICU. You could not cross the line of the ICU for two months. Now, you could sleep in there, Mm. and you ate, obviously, Mm. but you could not cross that line for two months.
0: And this is the culture that DeBakey created?
1: This is the culture of DeBakey, and, you know, if you did, you were fired. Wow. It was just done. You're done.
0: And in contrast with that, you're saying in Seattle it's far more humane and there was more collegiality, I say
1: Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: I read something interesting about Dr. DeBakey that – one of the procedures he helped develop was a procedure for the ascending uh, thoracic uh, aneurysm. And then years later, when he was in his mid-90s and he had that exact condition, he declined the surgery that he had once invented. Is that, is that right?
1: Uh, that's all correct, yeah. except, you know, he died one week short of 100 years old. Mm. So he was almost 100 when yeah. that happened. But he basically declined the operation. Now, having said that, when he was unconscious, they did it anyway. Oh, wow. Well.
0: Now, so this is, this is what brought you into surgery. You, you knew this sort of uh, innate feeling that this was the place for you. Now you go to University of Washington. How did you get into trauma? Uh,
1: you know, a big part of our training there is at Harborview, which I mentioned. That's a yeah. county hospital. We don't even have a county hospital anymore. Um, we're actually sitting in the old county hospital, oh, the my, Multnomah County Hospital, I see. as building, we speak, yeah. uh, which was obviously decommissioned. But that hospital lived, ate, and breathed trauma. It was the only trauma hospital in, in essentially four only level is, one trauma yeah. center in four states, yeah. and served as the whammy uh, referral center. And I fell in love with it. I thought it was you know the greatest thing. You know the lifestyle to me is exciting. I never know what I'm going to do on any given day. Mm-hmm. I could be headed to lunch, and five minutes later, I'm I'm getting ready to fix a hole in the heart. And wow. okay, I really enjoy uh, emergency surgery emergencies, exciting scenarios, saving lives, uh, I could never be somebody who just does elective surgery. You know, and, and one way to think about this mm-hmm. is in trauma, in emergency surgery, mm-hmm. the patient comes to you injured and you fix it. Right. Okay. In elective surgery, for the most part, these are common problems that you're expected to fix. Right. If you screw it up, yeah. you've harmed the patient.
0: Yeah. You took them through the risk for, yeah.
1: Right. I didn't stab the guy in the heart. (laughs) Right, exactly. But I could save that guy's life. Yeah. So for me, uh, I really like the variability. You know, no two days in my career have been the same. Every single day has been different. I've never done the same operation twice.
0: It's that that's much variation, and right. that's what drew you to it, right? You know, years ago I toured Harborview Hospital, and I remember being in the ER, and there was this big um, big whiteboard on the wall, and it had a line down the middle, and the line was between surgery and medicine, and on the medicine side it was like you know CO, you know uh, dyspnea, COPD, heart failure exacerbation the stock and trade of internal medicine on the right side on the surgical side i was looking at it and i saw um uh man versus 60 foot ladder man versus 140 foot ladder uh, uh motor vehicle accident five car pilot i saw the you know and i, I started asking myself what does a 140 foot ladder look like uh, that somebody's be versus it um, exactly yeah. so it was that level of um and of course helicopters landing all the time bringing people from alaska uh uh from from uh wyoming from uh, Montana, um, even.
1: Um, that kind of variety that drew you to it. And, and you know what? Uh, something that's really interesting about that. So in that environment, that was run by junior residents. Hmm. There were no attendings in that ER. So uh, the, emergency med- the emergency room, the surgical emergency room was run by a second year resident. They called him the trauma doc. And they were the center of everything. So, all the big traumas coming in, the lesser traumas, the surgical consults, as a second year resident, you are running the show, and your your team consisted of a couple of interns, one of which was my wife, interestingly. And I, if I could tell you some great stories if you want me to, but I respect the time we had no, no. uh, and, and some medical students. Uh-huh. and it was you against the world. So you were accepting all these you know ruptured triple A stab wounds to the heart. Uh, surgical emergencies, consults from all those four states, answering the phone, answering the phone every time uh, uh, the medics were going to bring in a patient. You'd go to the phone, trauma doc seven four.
0: So, is this where you you would say that this is where you began? You began to feel like you're a real doctor.
1: Absolutely, because you had a. I mean, the degree of responsibility was as
0: much as an attending has here. Exactly. These days. Exactly, Doctor Schreiber, attendings in trauma surgery these days. My understanding is that many programs, and I don't even know our own programs, so you can tell me, but many programs move to a model where attendings do some sort of shift work um, that they're on for 24 hours or 12 hours and they're alternating. Um, what's the model we use at OHSU? What are your thoughts on this model? And what was the prior model like?
1: So uh, uh, so what you describe is exactly what we have. So we have, uh, we have about 12 people who take call, uh, varying levels of FTE, and one of us is on call 24-7. One person can't do that. You've got to have a team. So we approach this as a team. Mm-hmm. And we cover really three areas. Uh, so, And these areas are known as acute care surgery. And those include the surgical ICU, emergency general surgery, which is surgical emergencies, and trauma. So at any given time, Monday through Friday, there's about five of us that are assigned duties five of the 12 are assigned duties so you could be the trauma surgeon you could be the icu doctor you could be the emergency general surgery doctor you could be a backup doctor or you could be the second icu doctor if the icu is really busy mm-hmm. and uh, you do this for a week at a time and then it rotates and somebody else does this oh, and for then we get a, a time so you can be on trauma for a week A week, Monday through Friday, Uh during the daytime hours.
0: Okay. Okay. Okay?
1: And then we have a person assigned at night, and you hand off everything to this person who's on at night, and we have a person at night and their backup. And, you know, this is a 24-7 business. In fact, trauma and emergency surgery tends to happen during the evenings and at night. Mm -hmm. One human being can't do that. So you have to have a team approach. And the team works as a unit. Uh, We have common policies and guidelines on how we manage patients. We all have similar practices. We talk about this on a routine basis. We talk about this in M&M. And we manage patients very similarly. And I think that there's no other way to do acute care surgery than as a team. I see. The same mentality uh, that exists um, in the military
0: is being brought even into civilian trauma medicine, that this is a team effort.
1: Right. Uh, Now, military is a little different Uh because you're basically at surgery camp. That's all you do. If you're at a forward, let's say you're at a you're at a forward surgical team, sleeping in a tent, working in tents, you've got a team of 20 people, more or less, that are on call 24/7, 365, for as long as you're there. So in the army, we have something called 90 days boots on the ground. We're in theater for 90 days at a time. While you're in theater, present, you're on call all the time. And that same routine, that same team responds to every single patient. Wow. So that's a different situation. I call it trauma camp. It's
0: possible that, um, actually, before I ask you about trauma camp, I wanna ask you, (laughs) so then what made you get into the military? This was after, you're a resident when you decided to do it?
1: Yeah, no, actually medical school. So what happened, uh, so interesting story. Uh, I've always been enamored with the the military. I love military history. I've Mm -hmm. loved reading about war, uh, going all the way back to the Greeks and the Romans the Trojan War, etc. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'll tell you what happened was, I went to the University of Chicago for college. For,
0: uh, I see. And
1: okay. uh, I had saved up about $20,000 from multiple jobs, and they didn't give me a penny of financial aid. So that was gone in two years. And so I'm collecting cans, uh, having lung tissue, bronchoscopy to get lung tissue. So oh, you, you were volunteering your body for the money. Right, oh, right. Okay. And two jobs, and... Uh, by the end of it, I was $20,000 in debt. Mm. And to me, that was the end of the world. And in those days, that's quite a lot of money. I, to me, it was And enormous. I think it was,
0: I mean, if you one looks at the inflation of it, it yeah. you know, nowadays it seems like a drop in the bucket, but it's only because we have had massive tuition inflation. But right. that was a lot of money.
1: Exactly. Yeah. So here's an opportunity where medical school will be paid for and uh-huh. they'll pay you a stipend. Uh-huh. And it is exchanged for four years on active duty. Uh-huh. And to me, I had no problem with that. I looked forward to it. And it was the best decision I made in my life.
0: Really? Yeah. And, and talk about that. And that's because um, because your interests really dovetail well. I mean, surgery and trauma and military, that's hand in hand. Exactly. And what it
1: did is it really created my career mm-hmm. because uh, I had the best experiences I could ever wish to have. I uh, made a whole new uh, worldwide frameship of friend, new friends that are friends for life. And it developed me into what I'm doing research wise. So all of my research interests are combat related. Their combat casualty care uh, research, most of my research is funded by the, by the Department of Defense. I see. And all of this was out of uh, my experiences in wartime.
0: And now let's go back. When you're in wartime and you're in Iraq, for instance, in 2005, and you're there for these 90-day stretches, it's possible you're operating day and night for day after
1: day after day. Absolutely. Yeah, in fact, it, it, you know, basically, things come in bursts. So you may, you know, the biggest uh, casualty episode that occurred when I was in Iraq was 235 patients. 235 patients? Yeah. Yeah. At like once coming at you? Yeah. So, well, this happened in Mosul. Uh, Mm -hmm. We had a split combat support hospital. Half of it was in Mosul and half of it was in Tikrit. So we got 23 of those 250 patients all at once. And uh, the way this was done is a terrorist uh, uh, went to a market, planted an IED, planted three IEDs. So the first one goes off, people are injured, people come to help. 10 to 15 minutes later, the second one goes off. Maximum injuring capacity. 15, 20 minutes later, the third one goes off. So you injure the maximum number of people possible, total of 235 casualties. I see,
0: So using the strategy is that the second blast is at a delay when, when first responders are there on the scene, and it actually draws people in.
1: It's amazing, mm-hmm. the, uh, the strategic nature of the terrorist approach is amazing in terms of the sophistication and effectiveness. Mm. Uh, but we received 23 patients at night and that's you know several days of operating. Uh, you know the first wave you're operating on a bunch of those patients and then you're taking them back uh, and operating again. Now I, you know I mentioned when we talked about this, I mentioned that you can transfer patients to higher levels of care. Most of these patients almost in fact all of them were Afghans, in this case Iraqis, mm-hmm. and those don't get transferred. You're, you buy them until you're done with them. I see, these are working
0: alongside US soldiers, um, but they don't, they're do not they not gonna get transferred, so you have to do all the operating in the mobile, mobile That's right. surgical unit, so you, I,
1: I mean I mean, so in this case, it was civilians. Oh, it was a marketplace. Was,
0: oh, so the civilians are being brought into you, I oh, see. Yeah. Oh yeah, right, okay.
1: right. So, you know, 23 Iraqi civilians in a marketplace, injured by terrorists, we care for all of those patients. And we take, you know, some of those patients, we took care of up to three to four months.
0: So being there as a surgeon there could be several days where it is quiet exactly and you're not doing anything exactly reading books or something like that right and then all of a sudden you're asked to go at moment's notice and you just have to be ready to go
1: exactly within minutes there's a you know you could have 15 20 patients
0: is it harder to do this as one gets a little bit older? Uh, not to say you're old; you're still a young man. But um, especially in, in this field of medicine, where we know that you're, of course,
1: you're a young man because we're people we work a lot in medicine, we work very old.
0: But uh, is it harder? As it does it does it change to be You know, The to, hardest
1: thing yeah. to do is carry your three duffel bags worth of everything you need for three months on your back as you get really? older. <laughs> <laughs> they don't give you anyone to help you out with that. <laughs> um, so, but so, staying awake is that get harder? Does it get easier? You know. That hasn't changed my entire career, you know. When when the when the action's on and you need to perform to save a life, you're going to be awake.
0: Do you always have this positive attitude? You're a very upbeat person. Is that is that even in the heat is to, when you're in the operating room and so, and your fingers slip or something goes wrong, are do you get frustrated, angry? What, what's your how do you deal with that?
1: You know, there's a single solitary focus, and that's saving the patient's life. Mm-hmm. If something goes wrong, you fix it. I see. You do whatever it takes. You fight the battle until the patient is 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 better. You've done everything you can, or the patient dies. And whatever happens, you just keep that focus and you move forward, mm-hmm. addressing problems as you hit them and doing everything you can for every single patient. I treat every patient the same, whether it's a terrorist or a uh, one of our war fighters. Uh, they're human beings, and I treat them all the same, and I, I fight the battle until it's won or lost. You've had to operate on on enemy combatants? Oh, absolutely. People who, who, who actively who acti- want to kill me. Really? Absolutely.
0: And, um, and you do that because um, that's part of the oath to be a physician.
1: That's right. And, and you know what? They're human beings. Mm-hmm. And they're doing what they're doing for whatever reason they're doing it. I'm not there to judge them. I'm not there to fight the battles in terms of firing weapons and that type of thing. I'm there to take care of patients. And those are human beings. And I take care of everybody equally.
0: That's remarkable. That's admirable. Um, and I always wonder how, um, you know, many of us may feel similarly to you that that's what we what we believe it means to be a doctor, but not all of us have been tested the way you may have been tested because, um, I mean, I certainly have not been, I mean, I've. I never treated a patient who, you know, wasn't also, you know, on my philosophical side. Of course, I'm an oncologist and practicing in the United States. Um, I want to ask you about being a a, a surgeon in this sense. Um, This is just something that that always sticks in my mind. But sometimes people tell me, uh, you need this operation. You need that operation. Go see Dr. So-and-so. Go see Dr. So-and-so. They're good at it. And I wonder, you know, like, what do they mean by they're good at it? And I was like, you know, like, I'm 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 an oncologist, um, but I've had an opportunity when I was a third-year student to spend a lot of time on surgery. Um, And I even did some of my electives on surgery when I was a fourth year to get a little bit more exposure to something that, you know, I wasn't going to get again. Um, And and I realized that, you know... um, when somebody says that they're a good surgeon, I think what they often mean is that when they interact with me in tumor boards, we have a good rapport. But that's very different than saying they're a good surgeon, i.e. when they're doing the surgery, they're doing it in this very um, good way. And I and I don't pretend to know what it means to be a really good technical surgeon, but I have you know spent several months of my life watching people do it. And I do think there's a disconnect between the rapport someone may have and their ability to stay calm under pressure um, to focus on the task at hand um, to avoid distraction um, to um, some people are just really good at building um, camaraderie in the room you know checking in with everybody in the room um, as well as while focusing on this so I guess what I'm trying to ask you is like do you feel like you only truly know another surgeon when you operate together how do you judge a surgeon you have many residents that come through um, surely some some. Some of them stick out in your mind as that person is really good. Uh, How do you
1: judge a surgeon? So, uh, you know, really complex question. Uh, And there's a lot of elements to it. So I think uh, when you talk about uh, what makes a person a good surgeon, so if I'm interacting, you're, you're an oncologist and I'm interacting with you. You're going to think I'm a good doctor if I provide you a good service. Mm-hmm. You call me, I come, I see the patient, right. I do a comprehensive evaluation, I make a plan, I talk to the patient. The patient feels good about our discussion, and then I operate on the patient, and uh, and the patient does well, and I follow up the patient appropriately. I call you back and say, here's what happened in the operating room. I'm happy. Have, I'm real happy. Then. So right, you're yeah. loving me I as love a you. surgeon, right? Exactly. Okay? Yep. Nothing I said has anything to do with my technical capabilities. Correct. So, uh, so but the technical capabilities are an important aspect of being a good surgeon. Now other important aspects are knowing when to operate, knowing how much to operate, and knowing when not to operate. Those are critical elements that somebody on the outside may not identify as a problem. So if I, I could be the best technical surgeon on the planet, but if I go and operate on a person who's not going to benefit from the procedure because they're a bad candidate for surgery, uh, if the, the, the surgery is not indicated, I'm a bad surgeon. Hmm. So I could be the best technical surgeon on the planet, but still be a bad surgeon because my judgment is poor. Mm-hmm. So what makes a good surgeon is someone who has all of those abilities, who is a good person, who does talk to their consultants, who does give feedback, who all does- All that
0: matters, yes. All uh, of
1: it matters, uh-huh. but, but, also, to- yeah. but also uh-huh. what matters is the judgment of knowing when, how much, and when not to operate, and the technical skill to be a good surgeon. Um, other things that matter in, in, in surgery, in trauma surgery particularly, are prioritizing. What do I? I've got a patient with multiple injuries. What needs addressed first? Maybe they're shot through the chest and abdomen. Do I start in the chest? Do I start in the abdomen? Uh-huh. Those types of judgments are really important aspects of what what makes a person a good surgeon. So how do you learn that that's not in any textbook that's not anywhere to be found so you know what i what i i i refer to it as playing poker you play you play your best hand so you know the literature you know the data and you say okay based on everything i've got in this patient the clinical scenario the likelihood is Mm -hmm. the problem is in the abdomen okay i'm going to the abdomen first i see i could be wrong but i'm playing odds and one of the beauties of trauma surgery is that you make major interventions on people with minimal information. Because you don't always have a CAT scan ready to go. Exactly. You Patients dying in front of you, you're not gonna get a CAT scan. So you're doing an e a laparotomy. You're opening with,
0: them up without knowing exactly. And you're you're
1: taking, opening body cavities with no information. Uh, you're making probability judgments. Exactly.
0: Let me ask you, so one of the things some of my colleagues say who do surgery, but they do more elective surgery, they talk about how um, they believe that, uh, and I don't know if this is um, a very tactful thing, but they believe that in some markets, lots of the elective surgeries get done, and yet surgeons try to keep busy. And for that reason, there's some decisions that are made in the choice of surgery that would be decisions that might not be made in a very rural setting where there's lots of business to do. Mm -hmm. And so they kind of feel like critical that, you know, um, that well, that's what happens when you have a lot of surgeons. They need to do something, um, and so they end up doing things that, as you point out, that you know maybe one might wonder if this is really the best um, thing. But in trauma surgery, that's kind of removed from the equation. Um, is that accurate, or, or can well, even a trauma surgeon make work that doesn't need to be made?
1: I'm going to tell you, uh, uh, you know, I think that the type of practice that you're in plays a major role in what you're talking about. So, and and what I'm talking about is a private practice. Yeah physician versus a university surgeon yeah so i'm a university surgeon i um I, i'm gonna get paid the same no matter how many surges, I surgeries i can do a hundred surgeries i could do a thousand surgeries i see i'm gonna get paid the exact same amount i see you're not incentivized to do yeah. i'm not incentivized to do unnecessary surgery right so i evaluate patients and i make the best decisions that i can and i do what's best for the patient money is not in my brain now if you're in private practice as a surgeon Unfortunately, you can't separate it from what you're doing. Yeah. And whether it's a conscious or unconscious bias, you're going to have a greater tendency to operate on the same patient because you're going to make more money. Hmm. It impacts you financially. Right. And course, uh, yeah. I don't I have no bad criticisms about the other, you know there's two trauma centers in Portland. Mm-hmm. And one of them is more of a private practice model.
0: I say there is some financial incentive.
1: And there's financial incentive, and I think if you talk to the residents, the practice is, is affected by that.
0: Because our residents rotate at different And the centers. residents go to mm-hmm. both places,
1: and they'll see that um, we may be more selective about what procedures we do, and I think that, I really think that the thing that plays the greatest role in this is the type of practice and the financial incentive. Yeah. Do you also think that, um, I mean, I think that, it,
0: it, I, I agree with you fully, and, and, and there's also this like nice literature on fee-for-service medicine and what that leads to. My question is on the flip side of it. Do you think it's possible that in some settings if there is absolutely no financial incentive that people may uh, omit doing something that ought to be done or is that less of a concern in surgery because you know surgeons are not that's not there in their DNA. You are, know are what, there doctors I, who yeah, who I omit, mean, what I, omit what needs to be done because I, I they won't take it easy? Yeah. I
1: mean, all personalities are in play. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think, you know, mm-hmm. you asked what was, you know, what makes a good surgeon? Yeah. And I think that this is a critical element of it. Again, knowing when to operate and who to operate on, you know, that decision should not be impacted by uh, workload.
0: I see. You know, even if you're tired or you're hungry and you want to sleep, that's not a factor at all. It can't be
1: factored. It can't be factored. It can't be factored. And this is why, and this gets back to something we talked about earlier, which is the team approach. Yeah. So you've always got a fresh person coming on. You know, that's a critical element. You're going to burn, you know. Yeah. I mentioned we have 12 people. Yeah. We take three nights a call a month, which is not a lot. Uh-huh. And, you know, we work five-day weeks so that we're keeping our people fresh, and they're not exhausted, and they can make the right decision.
0: Now, what about in the battlefield setting? Because do you have that kind of luxury of having fresh people?
1: No. In you know, the battlefield, you've got a team and you're there 24-7, you do whatever comes. But and you the sense operate. of
0: mission and duty is even higher. That's right. When you train residents over all these years, you, and of course, you don't have to name names, but are there residents who stand out in your mind and you think to yourself, my God, this person is good? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and and what is it that they, it's their judgment? Like they call you in the middle of the night and they say, you know, Dr. Schreiber, I have this person here. This is what's going on. Here's my plan for what we should do. Um, how do you, when, when tell do you, you
1: yeah. I'll tell you exactly. Yeah. I'll tell you exactly what it is. What it is, is I don't have to do anything. <laughs> That's, That's my favorite too. <laughs> no, no, it's really no, no, true. Yeah, it's yeah, really yeah, true. Yeah. They're so, so good. They they're reading your mind. They're they're so good. Yeah. Now they might not do things exactly the way I I, I, I want to do it. Yeah. But what they're doing is perfectly acceptable, and fine for the, and won't harm the patient. So I you know, in general, my philosophy is you know the residents need to learn by doing. I'm watching them. But as long as they're doing things that are to the patient's benefit and aren't harmful, I'm going to let them do it. The best residents are the ones that have it all figured out and they, they basically can, can uh, operate autonomously. And I'm making minimal interventions. I'm not scrubbing in. Mm. I'm staying unscrubbed. Because they're so good they don't need me to scrub in. Right. I'm not changing their decisions. Right. Their decisions are so good, I'm not changing it. They're managing the service so well that I'm not really having to make any interventions at all. And that is the bottom line manometer of how good the resident is. Yeah. I'm not taking phone calls because they're yelling at the nurses or the consultants are pissed off.
0: Yeah, I'll tell you something. I mean, just um, in our, in my field, it's obviously very different. I mean, it's different in, in many respects, but one thing is the same, which is the people who like are really shining stars. Um, I, I find myself like not even being able to say a word because they're just saying everything that I would, uh, somebody <laughs> once, you know, I was was critical, giving me a little feedback saying that like I interrupted them too much in their presentation, and I apologized, of course. But the reason I was interrupting was there's all this information that I want that they weren't saying when I wanted to hear it, so I couldn't make any things. I couldn't follow along. But then, you know, over time, I've had some people who speak, and I'm just like silent for like seven minutes as they're talking, and everything they're saying is exactly the next thing I wanted to know. And that's when I'm like, wow, this person is, you know, a hand to my stethoscope, take over the clinic. You know, exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah, it's that feeling. I agree when when you get the residents who are s- superb um, do they always want to pursue what you've pursued and when they don't want to pursue what you've pursued, go into a different surgical subspecialty h- How do you feel about that do you you know is it um
1: obviously we all love what we do the most and so is it always a little bittersweet you know uh we need good surgeons in every specialty uh, you know usually they're not going into what I'm going into uh although I- But these days, trauma is more popular. Trauma is popular, but, you know, other special, you know, there's groups of people that like trauma, acute care surgery, but then there's others that like more uh, limited practices like colorectal, Mm -hmm. more elective, less emergencies, uh, more, uh, you know, the operations are very similar. You can focus on it, get really good at it. Uh, Some people like going to breast surgery. Some people want to do minimally invasive. (coughs) All of these things less emergency, less nighttime work, those kinds of things. And people want, you know, they're, they're looking at lifestyle as important. They don't want to be in the hospital all night long. And they're choosing careers for those types of reasons. Uh, but I think that good people go into all specialties. And we've had great residents that got, got into everything. I always, you know, kind of hope that the best ones are going to do what I'm going to do. <laughs> yeah, but I do too. understand the importance of having good surgeons in all specialties. Hmm.
0: Dr. Schreiber, I wonder if you can uh, talk a little bit about. um, You know, we were in conference recently, this hemostasis conference um, that we both attend, and you were talking about um, uh, a randomized clinical trial you were doing um, that uh, has really quite a large scope. I was wondering if you could tell, tell us a little bit about that. What, what was it you set out to do and, and what has it been like doing that project?
1: Yeah, so uh, we looked at uh, tranexamic acid. So uh, uh, OHSU is part of a consortium, it's called the Resuscitation Outcome Consortium. It's got multiple funding partners, uh, including DOD, both in Canada and the United States, NIH, American Heart Association, similar organization in Canada. Uh, and this study was also largely funded by the DOD on top of just the ROC alone. Uh, so this was a study of tranexamic acid, which has been using being used commonly in trauma, uh, largely as a result as a study called Crash Two, mm. which was a trauma study, uh, which was actually a twenty thousand person trauma study, wow. done in about forty countries, two hundred sixty hospitals all around the world, uh, a lot of it in third world countries, places like Iraq, mm-hmm. places like India. Uh, the Mideast, you know, Mm -hmm. all around the world, 20,000 patients. Mm -hmm. The study showed a 1.5% improved survival rate in patients who got tranexamic acid. And this was mostly for patients who are at risk for hemorrhagic shock. I see. There was a signal in that trial that there may be a benefit in brain injury. And there was a couple other trials that also had a signal. They were smaller trials. uh, So what we decided to do, again, largely funded by the Department of Defense, was a 1,000-patient study and traumatic brain injury utilizing pre-hospital tranexamic acid and this is a key pre-hospital pre-hospital you want to get this in the bloodstream early yeah so one of the important findings of this crash 2 trial was that the earlier you gave the drug mm-hmm. the better patients did i see and at three hours I see. you actually saw higher mortality i see okay so earliest you can give it is pre-hospital so this was a pre-hospital trial all around north america united states and canada uh, multiple cities, multiple agencies.
0: And the other nice thing to point out here is that um, in the prior, what what you did was the right thing. A, a post hoc finding in a prior study is hypothesis generating for a future study. Exactly. Right. Exactly. In my in my line of work, it's a, a post hoc finding in a prior study is uh, practice changing. We don't need to do another study. <laughs> but at least you're doing you know you're doing the right thing because you're right. testing it prospectively, right? Yeah. Okay.
1: So we randomized patients to one of three groups. Uh, The standard dosing for tranexamic acid in trauma is one gram Mm -hmm. bolus followed by a one gram infusion over eight hours. Mm -hmm. So our three groups were a placebo bolus in the field followed by a placebo given over eight hours, a one gram bolus in the field followed by one gram over eight hours in the hospital, and a two gram bolus in the field followed by a placebo Uh, infusion in the hospital. And the reason why we did this is we, again, wanted to get the drug to the patient very early, and it's much more feasible in a military setting to do, just give a single bolus and not worry about an infusion. Mm -hmm. And so we did this in a 1,000 patients. It was actually 963 patients. Uh, The study was executed beautifully. We had very high compliance. Uh, Patients, uh, the protocol was followed very closely, and what we found was survival was twice as high in the two-gram Bolus group than either the one gram group, uh, one gram and one gram group, or the placebo group. Twice as finding. high survival. The benefit was primarily in the first 10 hours
0: we and, saw. And, you know, just to like give us some sense of these patients, like what is the one week survival of these patients? Is the 75%
1: or? So, uh, or the, you know, 48 pa- hour survival? Of so these were patients with moderate to severe brain injury. Uh, with a Glasgow coma score between 3 and 12. Oh, okay. And Severe, uh, yeah. the survival rate of those patients is about 75%. I
0: see.
1: And uh, so we saw about a 12% mortality in the 2-gram group versus about 24% mortality in the other two groups. Oh, this would be remarkable. And, oh, yeah. and, the, and the thing that was really marked about this study was the placebo group and the 1-gram, one 1-gram one group, which, again, is the standard dosing that we're using in trauma, were identical in essentially every factor.
0: What made you, um, how did you guys know to try a two-gram uh,
1: two group? Uh, there was, there's some prior data. In fact, up to four grams has been given. I see. But as the dosage increases, we're, you see increasing seizures. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, and there's a concern about thromboembolic ph- phenomenon as well. So we felt that the two-gram dosage was a safe dosage based on existing literature. Uh, balance of the two. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Now, this one-gram, one-gram strategy really evolved out of elective surgery things like spine surgery where you have ongoing blood loss for hours. And it makes sense to give an effusion. In trauma, you have an acute event, you have acute bleeding, and it doesn't really make sense from right. a philosophical standpoint. Right. So we had a hypothesis that you know the two grams would be a more effective method and in fact turned out to be uh, better. We did see a higher survival rate twice as high.
0: And this has been presented as abstract in the paper is perhaps forthcoming.
1: Yeah, so we presented this at the uh, Military Health Forum, which is the major uh, research forum uh, for the military. It's held in uh, the summer. And uh, we're getting ready to submit it for New England Journal of Medicine. Mm -hmm. That's wonderful.
0: I guess... um, I don't want to take up too much of your time. I know you're a busy person, but I wanted to ask you uh, for your, any of your, you know, as somebody who's read a lot about war and been there so close to so close to it and in it, um, war and medicine are intertwined throughout all of medical history. Uh, after every major war, there's been medical advances. Um and war and humanity are intertwined you know this is the, 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 the almost fundamental to who we are is that it's inevitable i mean perhaps inevitable that it, it eventually happens what reflections have you had about medicine and war from having been there
1: so uh the first thing i want to say is that uh there is nothing more horrendous or horrible uh to experience in uh wartime uh the degree of hatred, uh, damage, physical death, torture, suffering, war creates more of those things than anything else. So in no way do I find war to be of anything have any value at all, with the single exception that progress in medicine occurs at a great rate in wartime scenarios. So I mean, but I, what I want to say most is that there's nothing more horrible, mm. uh, nothing more putrid, nothing more disgusting and hateful than war. And uh, no one should be exposed to have to deal with it. But the one good thing that comes out of it are advances in medicine. Now, I do have to make a caveat. And I'll give an example. These, are, these could be positive advances or they could be negative advances.
0: Oh, talk about – yeah, tell me about that.
1: So um, – and let me tell you just uh, a couple – Uh, In World War II, there was a mandate that you could never repair a colon. Every single warfighter who had a colon injury had to be diverted. Oh, boy. At risk of court-martial if you didn't do it. And this came from the Office of the Surgeon General of the Army. And for 30 years after that. That was the standard. That was the standard of care. And then in the 1970s. The surgeon said, well, maybe we don't have to do this. And over the course of the next 20 years, we finally realized we don't have to divert. In fact, most patients should not be diverted. In fact, they do worse. Hmm. Now, part of that has to do with uh, the nature of the injury, the, the technology of the times, the use of antibiotics, you know, good stapling devices, these types of things, technology changes. But I'll tell you, for the next 30 to 50 years, because of World War II, every single person who had an injury to their colon got a colostomy Hmm. and that was not good Uh, and another perfect example vietnam war this was a time when we thought that crystalloid Hmm. was the thing to give for resuscitation Mm -hmm. so huge volumes of crystalloid given enrolled in vietnam and this is when we discovered ards shock lung we have three names for it ards shock lung donang lung all a direct result of massive crystalloid resuscitation. I see. So the double edge of the sword of
0: medical advances during war is that the central administration of philosophy in war can really implement a bad thing.
1: That's correct. Hmm. So it could be good or bad. So it took the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan to reverse the mistakes Hmm. of the war in Vietnam Hmm. and to go back to something very simple, whole blood, the first whole blood transfusion given in the United States. Uh, was actually well it was given by uh, in, in the late 1700s by a, uh, the father of surgery was a guy named Physic. But in wartime, the first transfusions were given the Civil War. Two transfusions given to amputees with documented good results, mm-hmm. restoration of a strong pulse, these kinds of things. Uh, during World War One. They actually attached blood vessels from the donor to the uh, recipient, anastomosed the vessels. Wow. And gave direct transfusion, then created devices to do that. Wow. Uh, World War II, we used almost all plasma, dried plasma, LaFla's plasma. Came from multiple donors, full of hepatitis. Lots of people who got hepatitis. Uh-huh. Vietnam, crystalloid. Uh
0: huh.
1: You know, these are simplifications, yeah, but, yeah, these, yeah, but are these are sort are some of the characteristics. Of the, yeah. And then Iraq, Afghanistan, whole blood. And now in civ- civilian medicine, whole blood. So I mentioned earlier that the biggest transfusion I gave in the in theater was 23 units. Well, the biggest transfusion I've given at OHSU is 38 units of whole blood. Wow.
0: That's fascinating. I guess, um, well, I know I've taken too much of your time, but Dr. Schreiber, I want to thank you for coming here and sharing your experiences. I think it's it's really fascinating. We could probably talk about this all day. Yeah. Um, any, any final thoughts you would like to tell this audience? You know,
1: yeah. I... I, I you know uh, you can tell you mentioned my positive attitude i'm, I'm talking yeah. about my career i'm talking about my life i'm yeah. talking about what i love uh if anybody's thinking about it uh out there uh all i can tell you is that it's the greatest thing you know being a surgeon and being a military surgeon is the greatest profession i can think of uh maybe that wouldn't be the same for everyone but it has been the greatest thing in my life and uh you can tell by my enthusiasm how excited i am about it and I think a lot of other people would feel the same way.
0: Yeah, I think you've you've done us all a tremendous honor, and um, and we're in your debt. So thank you so much, Dr. Thank Schreiber. You. Yep. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to Plenary Session. Plenary Session is a podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy. I've been your host, Vinay Prasad. If you like this podcast and you like this episode, go to the iTunes store and give us five stars. It really means a lot. If you have the time, write a comment. If you want to give us feedback, you can follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session, or you can send an email to plenary session at gmail.com. We like to know what you're thinking. What could be, be better? What topics could we cover? Um, how can we improve? Finally, Plenary Session owes a debt of gratitude to Kiana Klossner, Audrey Tran, and Ian Straley.